How you guys doing out there? Good? Happy December. All your shopping done? No? I'm sorry to add to your stress this morning. We're in a series called By Anxiety, by design, actually, because uh, this time of year year can be uh, stressful for a lot of people. We're looking at the fact, I I hate to say facts because facts are so in in dispute these days, but it, it is a fact that anxiety has reached pretty much pandemic levels in the United States. It's the leading cause of mental and emotional health issues these days, and it is on the rise in adults, it's on the rise in colleges, it's on the rise in high schools, it's on the rise in middle schools, it's on the rise in elementary schools, and their latest research says it's on the rise in preschools. <laughs> We're doing a great job with our population. So we've begun to investigate some of the sources of this anxiety in this series, and looking more importantly at what God would have to say about those to us. Two weeks ago, we dug into uh, the uh, fear of aging and death. And then last week, we talked about actually the fear of living, you know, the stuff we have to deal with before we actually die. Today, I want to dig into another source of anxiety, and that is financial anxiety, financial fear. So let me just kick off with a couple of words uh, from Hebrews chapter 13. And uh, we'll go from there. Here's what he says. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, referring to Christ, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me just pray for us and we'll see what God has to say. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thanks for these folks that have come. Uh, thanks for this series on anxiety that uh, I'm hoping, Lord, trusting that you will use to help rid us of some of ours uh, as we move into this holiday season and the new year. Uh, pray that you just um, bless our time here, that we might have open hearts to hear, open minds to understand, uh, and that we might be changed from our time in your presence this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, You have that verse, right? It says, we as Christ followers can confidently say, I will not fear. Here's the problem. Most of us do not say that. The reality is that financial fear is a reality for most people, including Christ followers. Northwestern Mutual did a study earlier this year called the Northwestern Mutual Planning and Progress Study riveting title, right? Just makes you want to jump in and read the whole, whatever, 1,500 pages. Anyway, here's, let me summarize it for you so you don't have to read the whole thing. Their findings reveal that 80% of their respondents felt that they have, uh, are enduring some form of financial anxiety. They also found out, because they're an insurance company, that anxiety is actually bad for your health. And it also negatively affects one's home life. In fact, it's one of the leading causes of stresses in relationships. When marriages end, more often than not, the participants cite financial issues as a cause. And that survey that's done this year is actually was echoed uh, by uh, a 2015 study by the American Psychology Association, which showed that money is the leading, the leading, the leading cause of anxiety among Americans. We stress that over all kinds of financial issues, don't we? We stress out over whether or not we're going to have enough retirement funds and savings, right, to last us until we die. 
We stress out over whether we're going to be able to afford health care. We stress about whether we're going to have money for kids' tuition, college, uh, college tuition or weddings, right? We stress out over we're going to ever be able to get out of debt. Some of us stress over whether we're going to run out of money before we turn over the new month, right? We stress over the fact that maybe a primary breadwinner will become disabled or sick or even die, and the, all of the what-ifs that flow from those scenarios. But, but here is a counterintuitive fact. The wealthy are not exempt from financial anxiety, just like the gal on the video said that we just saw. And she's right. The wealthy may well be actually the most vulnerable to financial anxiety. A nationwide survey done in 2015 of investors who are worth more than a million dollars. They have a million dollars or more. Here's what they found. That while millionaires derive some satisfaction from the fact that they have amassed some wealth, they also feel compelled to strive for more. And it's spurred on not only by their own ambition, but by the desire to protect their family's lifestyle and, listen to this, an ever-present fear of losing it all. So maybe the notorious B.I.G. had it right when he said, Mo money, mo problems. Now, there are some practical ways, right? We can deal with some of this financial anxiety. My father-in-law gave Jackie and me this little pithy advice when we started out. His pithy advice was this, Spend less than you earn. Good advice, right? So we can learn to save. We can learn to be good stewards. We can learn to avoid debt. We can learn to embrace a simpler lifestyle. But as good as those principles are, the rich tell us that those are not going to cure our issues over financial anxiety. Because there are deeper things at work, at play in the human heart and soul and they require deeper answers than simply having a bigger check balance, right? There are bigger things going on in our hearts that require deeper answers than merely recommending, hey, get a savings account, set up your IRA, save for retirement, make sure you can afford health insurance. Deeper issues we need to wrestle with to deal with our financial anxiety. In fact, our fears of finances really kind of reveal what's going on in our hearts, so we need to kind of listen to what those fears are. In his book, uh, Running Scared, the author Ed Welch says this, there's a very close connection between what we fear and what we think we need. Whatever you need is just a mere stone's throw away from what you fear. In other words, our worries reveal what we really want and what we feel we really need to experience the good life. So if you think the good life is to have uh, the respect of everyone and your reputation really matters to you, then you're going to fear disapproval. You're going to fear rejection. And you're going to make every compromise necessary to win the approval of people. If the good life for you is to have a happy marriage, happy family, then you're going to fear being alone. You're going to fear being single. You're going to fear the abandonment of a spouse even more than you might fear infertility. If your idea of the good life is freedom, man, I just want to be able to do my own thing, not be encumbered, live the free life, then you're going to fear commitment. And you're ultimately going to fear love because love is a constrictor of freedom because you're focused on other people if you're really in love. 
So our fears tell us what we believe that we need to have the good life. They show us the things that we are trusting in to give us meaning and identity and significance and worth and joy and peace. And what is at the heart of financial fear is this. We feel like we need money if we're going to have a sense of value and worth and joy and peace. In other words, we trust in money to provide that. We make it an idol because we believe it will actually lead us to the good life. And we believe typically two things about money, that it will give us satisfaction and security. So we're going to kind of focus on those two aspects today. We have bought into most people the lie of our culture that money will actually bring us satisfaction and security. So let's ponder that for a second. The idea of satisfaction. We have a culture that spins a story for us. And that story says that we are really only as happy as the things that we possess. Only happy as we are financially free, which means we could buy anything that we want. We could have anything we want, anything we think we need. There's an interesting concept in a book that Mark Sayers writes. He chats about this in his book called The Trouble with Paris, Following Christ in a World of Plastic Promises. He talks about this phenomenon of hyper-reality, hyper-reality. And he describes hyper-reality, he defines it this way. It's a portrayal of life that actually exceeds or is way beyond what real life is actually like. In other words, a good example, you're standing at a grocery store, you're standing at a line ready to check out, and you see a magazine on the rack beside you. Now, on the front of the magazine rack is a picture of this gorgeous woman. She's portrayed to you as this gorgeous specimen, right? But see, what you don't see is all the makeup work done before the picture's taken. You don't see the cameraman getting the right lens, the right angle. You don't see the lighting director getting just the right lighting. You don't see the editor, after the photo is taken, manipulating the image so they can present this woman as perfection. What you see is a presentation that exceeds reality, that's beyond reality. It's hyper-reality. I, I saw an article on this a few years ago, so I, I went and, and I dug it up. <clears throat> it was talking about people who have decided to move to New York City. And the article tracked a bunch of people who moved to New York City with this vision, with this concept of what life in New York City would be that they got from the TV show Friends. <laughs> so they show up in New York thinking, okay, we're going to be awesome. I'm going to meet some really interesting people. We're going to have interesting romantic relationships. We're going to live in a totally cool apartment. We're going to splash around in city fountains. We might even have a theme song, right? It's going to be amazing. We're going to have a coffee shop that we can all go to and always hang out in all the time. They always have seats available for us, the big couch in the middle, sure. Here's the, they get to New York <laughs> and find out that that reality does not exist. Not only for them, but for pretty much nobody else. Your apartment's 400 square feet. You're sharing it with two other people. You don't have any interesting relationships. As a matter of fact, you found your roommates on Craigslist, and then you realize who you regret that that's not probably the best way to find roommates, right? You find that if you splash around in city fountains, you get a ticket, right? Life turns out to be nothing like it was portrayed to them on Friends. It was hyper-reality. 
And the world is constantly selling you and me an image of what our lives should be or could be like. All the exotic places you should travel, all the erotic romances that you should have as you move through singleness, dating, into marriage, right? All the things that you should possess, the kind of house that you should live in, all the interesting experiences you should have, the kind of car that you should drive. Guys, let me tell you this. I don't care that they got John Hamm from Mad Men to pitch the car on the screen in commercials. Can I just tell you? You buy Mercedes-Benz, none of them will come with a supermodel. I, know, I hope that doesn't crush your dreams, but that doesn't happen. It's, it's a hyper-real version of what life is really like. And it extends our expectations, and we end up living our lives perpetually discontented. We look at our lives, right? Our normal, boring, everyday, get up and go to work on Monday lives, and we start comparing our lives to the edited version of all of our friends' lives that we see on social media. And we think to ourselves, man, we're, we're missing out. So actually, guess what? There's, a, there's an actual fear now called FOMO, fear of missing out. What that is is a fear in us as we compare our lives to everyone else's lives that are frankly edited versions of their lives to make their lives look awesome when they are in fact, in reality, not awesome. But if you believe that their lives are awesome, you now have overextended expectations of the life that you should be living, and it creates perpetual discontent. So Mark Sayers in his book says it like this, hyper-reality is a, quote, I'll be happy when, end quote, experience. You can't really be happy now. I mean, happiness is postponed until you're when arrives. And you know something else? The when constantly shifts. By the time you get the when that you were waiting for, you already have other things. Because the when, when it arrives, doesn't really satisfy. So no matter how affluent or how comfortable our lives become, no matter how rich you become, we're always looking over our shoulder or down the road for something better, for something more. In, in many ways, I will be happy when that culture almost becomes addictive and leads us to a downward spiral where we always need a bigger hit, if you will, to satisfy the growing cravings that we have, and we actually become less free in the process. So you get what he's saying, right? Hyper-reality, this overinflated expectation of what my life should look like, that we get from the media, that we get from movies, that we get from TV, from social media, from the edited versions of our lives of all of our friends has created this I will be happy when existence. I'll be happy when I get to this place in my career. I'll be happy when I can get married. I'll be happy when we have a family. I'll be happy when we live in this house. Listen, can I just, most of us here are of driving age. Can you go back to the moment when you're doing your, you're practicing for your, your, your learner's permit? Wasn't your life going to be perfect? when you got your driver's license. How quickly did that happiness about that fly away and get replaced by, I'll be happy when I can drive this kind of car? Didn't take long, did it? When we buy into the I'll be happy when, happiness is always just beyond our reach. There's always something more. And what it leads to is consumerism where we're constantly 
consuming goods and experiences, looking for that sense of satisfaction for our hearts. But consumerism just leads to more spending, more debt, leads to more possessions. By the way, have you not figured it out yet? Your joys from those possessions have a limited shelf life. Isn't it like they always need upgrading? (laughs) Always. A new iPhone, pretty good for 18 months, but ah, got to upgrade it. Scripture has an answer to this predicament. Remember what we need, right? Keep your life free from the love of money. That's what it says. This constant desire for more, it says. Be content with what you have, it says. Scripture tells us that the answer to our constant drive of consumerism, our lack of satisfaction, is to find contentment. For you're not always wanting more, not always thinking about what you don't have, not always reaching and scraping and clawing to get more. You're just content with what you have. And notice what that passage says our, our contentment comes from. Be content with what you have, for I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, where does your contentment come from? Contentment comes from having and recognizing the presence of God in your life. That's where it's going to come from. Having and knowing that you are in the presence of God, the actual, real, felt presence of God as a person, your friend, your father, right? Not just some intellectual assent to the fact, but knowing him, real friendship with him. That's what the Bible talks about, this covenant relationship, this personal relationship with God. But sin totally messed this up for us, didn't it? Sin alienated us from God, cut us off from God, but God in his mercy looks down, he sees us struggling, right, as we're cut off from him sees that there's no way for us to get back to him and actually have contentment, actually have satisfaction, actually have security, sees us as rebels trying to fill our lives with all the pleasures and all the possessions, trying to fill all the emptiness, but still dead on the inside. Why? Because we were not made by God to be fulfilled by things. We were made to be fulfilled by him. So in his mercy, he sends his son who becomes flesh and blood, just like us, lives a life we should have lived but could not. He died the death death we deserve to die, paid for our sin on the cross, that we might be forgiven, made it possible for us to be reconciled, made peace with God again through Christ, to be brought back into a relationship where God makes a covenant with us through his son and says, look, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my beloved children. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to live inside of you so that you will know my presence every day in a very real way. And I promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll do good to you forever. I will pledge myself to you forever. You can count on me. Everything that you need to flourish, I will provide. Think about that. That's where God says our contentment is going to come from. When you have him in your life, when you know his presence, when you know his friendship, when you stand in awe of him, when you are obedient to him, when you know that he's yours forever, he becomes enough for you. Psalm 27 says this, my father and mother have forsaken me. No worries. The Lord will take me in. That's where contentment lies. The more you know him, the more he settles into your heart, the more you settle into his, contentment just breaks out as a natural almost supernatural result. 
Listen to how A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, talks about this. By the way, if you don't have the book, Pursuit of God, I couldn't strongly recommend enough that you should get this book and once a year, read it. Put it on your calendar, read it once a year. Here's what he says. The man or woman who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him or if he's allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be tempered that they will never be necessary for his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after the other, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has one in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he's actually lost nothing. For now he has it all in one. And he has it purely, legitimately, forever. In other words, if I have God, if I know God, if God is present in my life, really nothing else is necessary for my happiness. The only thing necessary for my happiness is God and whatever in his wisdom he deems necessary to give me for my life. And whatever he deems necessary, he will not withhold it from me. My satisfaction, my contentment is found in him. That's why C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Weight of Glory, this is this is amazing. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Do you buy that? I mean, can you believe that? Can you, can you really believe that having God as your friend, that knowing him, that being in a personal relationship with him, that having him pledge himself to you, making unbreakable promises to you, that that is everything that you need for happiness and contentment? Do you buy that? Let me, let me, let me tell you what happens if you don't. If you don't believe that, here's what happens. You are left with nothing to trust in, but the here and now. You're left with nothing to trust in but the physical. You're left with nothing to trust in but the tangible, things you can get your hands on. And with that is all that is left to us. We will naturally gorge ourselves on the here and now. We will gorge ourselves on the physical and we will gorge ourselves on the tangible, the things we can grab our hands onto. What we need, the first answer to our financial fear, our financial anxiety, is to be satisfied in our relationship with God through Christ. Not the idea of a God out there, but a personal God who is in us and living in us and thriving in us and that we are following and being led by. That's the first answer. We have financial fear because we think I'll never be happy without this stuff. And God says, no, you will never be happy without me. And I am offering myself to you in the fullness of myself in Jesus Christ. So the big question is, do you know him today? The second thing is security. We look to money for security, right? We are tempted, so tempted, even as Christ followers, to breathe in the air of our culture. And the culture tells us that if we want to be secure, if you want to have peace in life, you got to have money. But listen, just think about things, and you know this is not true. 
It might be partially true. You need some money, right? But it's not really true ultimately. Listen to this from Proverbs. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe, i.e. secure. A rich man's wealth, on the other hand, is his strong city. And like a high wall, in his imagination, before destruction a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Hear what he's saying? The Lord is the strong tower. He's the one that's the refuge. He's the one that is your protection. He's the one that provides security. But here's what the rich man thinks. No, no, my wealth is where I'm going to put my security. My wealth is a high wall. It's, nobody can scale it. Nobody can get over it. Nobody can break through it. It's impenetrable. So I'm good. I'm good with just my resources. The Bible says that that's actually only true in your imagination. In your imagination. It's actually haughtiness. It's actually arrogance. It's eventually going to bring you dishonor and destruction. Right? Now we know deep down, don't we, that money cannot give us ultimate security? We know this. We can purchase insurance, but it does not purchase invincibility, right? We know that it's not able to really heal our hearts. We know it really can't give us peace. We know it can't comfort us in our deepest sorrows. We know that it can't ease our guilt. We got to think through this, right? You might think that money provides you security. If that were the case, why are not all the millionaires in life financially free from anxiety? So, listen, what happens when a crisis hits? Just think about that. Think about that. I always t- tend to go in my mind, extrapolate to the extremes. Think about crises. I'm a pastor, so I've been in ERs. You've probably been there. I've been at funerals. I've talked to people racked with guilty consciences. Can I tell you this? I can't remember a single one of those instances. I can't remember any of those situations at all where the answer that is needed in that moment is to talk about money. Never. I never told someone at a funeral, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry for your loss. Sorry that you lost your spouse. Sorry that you lost your father. Sorry that you lost your, your grandmother, whatever. You know, I never said, I'm sorry for that loss, but I'm sure your pain is lessened by the fact that you got a really fact checking account. I've never said that. I've never told anybody who's just gotten diagnosed with cancer, well, it's going to be okay because you got insurance and you can afford the best doctors. Would that be helpful? You think you want to try that sometime? I don't tell someone who's lost a child or has a child go rogue. Well, you know, it's pretty bad, but, you know, let's focus on the bottom line here, your financial viability. Why? We don't, we don't do that. Why? We know better. We know at that moment... Money can't heal a heart. It can't comfort sorrow. It can't ease guilt. It cannot give you peace. It will never, ever prepare you for death. Money will never give you confidence in the day of your own death. Listen to Proverbs again. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath when God's going to judge. But righteousness delivers from death. I hate to be hate to be the bearer of bad news, but scriptures teach, as does John Keating in Dead Poet Society, that we are all destined to be worm food, right? Aren't we? We're all appointed to die. We're all going to die unless Jesus comes back and gets us first. And then what comes? Judgment. Death will put each of us before God, the great judge of the universe. And when it does, the question at hand 
You got to hear this. The question at hand in that moment will have nothing to do with your financial situation. Because you and I cannot pay God off for all the debts we owe him. Your only hope is in righteousness. And not a righteousness that comes from your efforts because you got none, according to scripture. It's a righteousness that comes as a gift from God through our faith in Christ. That is the only thing that can provide security that can deliver us from ultimate death. So money, look, cannot provide ultimate security. The only currency for that is the currency of the cross. So do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Money cannot give you the unshakable confidence that Hebrews talked about in the face of every threat, in the face of every kind of trial. Money cannot secure it. Look, we know this deep down, kind of, don't we? And the reason we know that is because we never try to comfort people who are in grief with thoughts of money. There is a better way. Hebrews 13 said, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Confidence comes from what? The knowing that the Lord is your helper, that he upholds you, that he strengthens you, that he won't leave you, that he won't forsake you, that he's going to work all things together for good, for your good. You don't need to fear. The Lord's at your side. The psalmist says, though 10,000 people, so you imagine a big war going on and there's, you're, you're, you're surrounded by tens of thousands of your, your colleagues and thousands of them are falling by your side. The person says, though 10,000 fall by my side, I will not fear because the Lord is with me. Given that the Lord is with you, what can man do? In other words, it's like what Paul said. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he's our helper, can we ultimately lose? What can man do to me? Well, okay, okay, he can kill you physically, but God's going to raise you up. He can, man can shame you, but in the end, God's going to glorify you and honor you. Man, be able, man may be able to ruin you, but in the end, if you are in Christ, you will rule and reign with Christ. Look, this is not fiction. This is not hyper-reality. This is how the universe actually works. This is reality. We know this because of what? The resurrection. The resurrection, yeah. They killed Christ, but God raised him from the dead. They shamed him and spat on him and mocked him and butchered him. Really? But he's been exalted. He sits at the right hand of the Father. They tried to ruin him, but he rules and reigns over all things. This is how the universe actually works. God vindicates his people, Christ's followers. We need not fear man. The Lord's our helper. He's where our confidence comes from. So notice what he says, God's in control. Remember what we said in this series? We've got to stop talking, listening to ourselves whine, and start talking to ourselves. Here the writer of Hebrews says, look, I can confidently say, think about that for a second. How many things are there really that you can confidently say? I know this. There's not one thing you can talk about about what you're going to do tomorrow that you can have any confidence in because your life could be snapped out today. I mean, total confidence that you're going to do something tomorrow? Doesn't exist. If Euripides is right, and frankly, Scripture agrees with Euripides. We need to start reminding ourselves 
that our confidence is in the Lord, our helper. He's our security. Yeah, I know everything seems to be falling apart right now, right? But I'm not going to put my trust in my money or insurance, all that kind of stuff. You need some money, you need some insurance, not, not against that stuff, but in terms of that, what is your ultimate confidence in? Not, you better not trust in your money. Trust in God. I will not trust in some idol that promises ultimate satisfaction, that promises ultimate security, that frankly can't deliver either. So I'm going to choose to trust in God. What does our financial anxiety reveal about us? It reveals our love of money and the fact that we are trusting in it to provide us satisfaction and security. We fear the absence of money if we don't have a lot. We fear the loss of it if we've got a lot because we believe that it is indispensable to our joy and peace. We've got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. No happiness can exist without it. No joy can exist without it. No peace can exist without it. The Proverbs warns us, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Talking about here about hoarding. Not talking about working and earning, earning a living, right? It says, when your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. And when that happens, it means it's become an idol to us. To have it for us is heaven. To have money is joy. To have it is peace, we think, right? To lose it or to lose track of it or to have a lack of it is like living hell for us. It's sorrowful. It's shameful. It gives us insecurity. We're gripped with anxiety about it because we made it our God. And it's a bad God. Can't trust it. Barbara says, look, it sprouts wings and flies away. You, you ever felt that way? Looking at your bank statement at the end of the month? Where the heck did it go? Where did it go? Thought I had some stuff saved up. But now the car breaks down. Air conditioning goes down. Need a new roof. <sighs> We've all experienced that. You'll never be free from financial anxiety and financial fears until we truly, functionally believe that God is greater. That God is more powerful. That God is more glorious than money. So do you believe that? Until you want God more than you want money, you'll never be free of financial fear. Until you want to know him and hear him and follow him and obey him and experience him, until you want that more than you want a raise or a bigger house or more financial security, you will never break the chain of financial fear or anxiety. You've got to believe that God is bigger, that God is better, that God is more. Listen, this is what the prophets in the Old Testament yapped about all the time. They were constantly telling the people of Israel, God's greater, God's more powerful, he's worth more, he's more valuable, he's more trustworthy than all the idols that you are bowing down to. Whatever it is that you are making and bowing down to, God's better, right? And joy and peace are to be found in him. They constantly call people back to God. And here's how they did it. They mocked Israel's idols. They heckled them. They insulted them. They said the worst things about them. Remember Elijah? He called out the 400 prophets of Baal uh, and said, okay, we're going to have a showdown. Let's go up on this hill. You build an altar to Baal. You put your sacrifice on there. You pray to your gods and call down fire from heaven. And I'll do the same thing. 
And whoever, whoever's God calls down, uh, brings down fire from heaven, we can all agree that that's going to be God, right? And so the 400 prophets of Baal begin to do their thing. They limp around. They're cutting themselves. They're dancing. They're yakking. What? And nothing's happening. So what's Elijah do? Guys, guys, like, where's your God, dudes? Maybe, maybe he's away on business. Maybe he's got preoccupied. Maybe he's relieving himself. Literally, it's in the scripture. You know? maybe, he's on the, maybe he's on the pot and he's distracted, right? You read Psalm 115. Your idols have eyes, but they can't see. They got mouths, but they can't speak. They got ears, but they can't hear. They got noses, but they can't smell. They got feet, but they cannot walk. In fact, they are so utterly powerless that they have to be carried around by you. He's telling their idol is nothing. It's no God at all. In fact, you have to make the thing. And then you have to carry it around. What kind of a God is that to worship? Read in Isaiah. If you read like chapters 40 to 44, there's a bunch of stuff in there. But he's just, Isaiah is just heckling the gods that the people have made, their idols. They've abandoned God and you made this idol your, your God. How'd that work? Okay, you had to hire a craftsman, some human being. He has to take a fire and melt some gold and silver. He has to take it and shape it and hammer it into a fashion of some kind of a, of, of a creature or a person. And the craftsman gets tired, so he has to take a break and get some water so he's going to get so high dehydrated. And then if you, if you don't have enough money to make it out of gold and silver, you just, you're poor enough, you just you have it, you make it out of wood. Find a tree that you planted, you cut the tree down, you take half the tree, you make an idol out of the other half, and you burn the other half. I mean, this tree is sacred? No, you burn the other half to cook your food. <laughs> Now you take the part that you use for the idol and you bow down to that sucker and say, deliver me. I'm placing all my trust and all my confidence in my satisfaction and my security in you, piece of wood. And Isaiah says, who, who can you compare to God for Pete's sakes? All the things that you're using to make your idols from, God made. <laughs> he sits enthroned. We are like, as people, grasshoppers to him. All the waters of the earth are just like a drop in, his, in the palm of his hand. He measures islands like fine sand. If every prince, he says, if every prince on earth, everybody, every leader on earth gathered the forces together to deal with God, it says God would do this. That's all. And they would burn like wildfire. If you think a 200-high wall of flame in California wildfire is terrifying, you've seen nothing compared to the power of our God. That's what Isaiah would say. And then Isaiah says this, but despite that power, despite that awesomeness, despite that might, he tends to his flock like a good shepherd. He carries his lambs close to his bosom. Yeah, great and mighty, and powerful, and awesome, and maybe even terrifying God, yet one that is so tender that he carries his people close to his heart. Maybe a little bit like this guy who rescued an orphaned wolf in the California wildfire. This is our God. No God you're going to be able to fashion money. No God that you're going to bow down to, your finances, is going to give you what God can it cannot deliver the security 
and the satisfaction that you crave. So mock it. Mock your idol of money. We need to do, take a $20 bill out of your billfold every once in a while. Look at it. And mock it. Go ahead. Heckle it. Tell it, man, you are a useful gift given to me by God. But you are a useless. God, I will not bow down to you. Say that to your money every once in a while. Get your monthly statement out. Say that to your monthly statement, right? You're a useful gift, but a useless God. I'm not going to look to you for my peace. I'm not going to look to you for my joy. I'm not going to look to you for my satisfaction. I'm not going to look for you. I'm not going to trust for you in my security. I'm going to trust in God. Now, let me conclude with this. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, I think, is that we don't need to have financial fear. We don't need to have financial anxiety. We're not supposed to have, as Christ followers, any of this because our ultimate confidence should be in God, not money, because God cares for us. Are you here today feeling a sense of lack? Are you under financial stress right now? Maybe the financial stress is due to your own goofy decisions. Could be. It's happened in my life before. But maybe it's due to circumstances totally outside your control. Either way, you're feeling it, right? You feel that great stress and that great strain from the lack. You know, if you're going to have, you don't know if you're going to have enough. So I want to say, look, first thing, put your confidence in God as a Christian. He has to be your security. But I also don't want to just say that and walk away. I want to say this. As your church, we feel led as leadership to be God's hands and feet. We actually have a benevolent fund that we use to help people who find themselves in the midst of need and crisis. And uh, that benevolent fund doesn't actually cover all the things that we uh, have a need for sometimes in our body. We have sometimes just said, you know, hey, we've got a need over here. Let's collect, let's collect some money. We've collected you know, thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars for people who have needs. If you would let us know, contact me, contact E when he's feeling better. Don't do it today. Stay far away from him today. <laughs> contact Greg. Contact Yasin. Or even send us a little note through our email. You can get on our website, info at thesurge.cc. Send us an info thing. Uh, Because one of the ways that God helps us is through the generosity of his people. So you don't need to fear financial stuff because your confidence is God. But you know what? How God might choose to meet that need is through the generosity of his people as his hands and feet. Okay? So let me pray for us.